Because if I'm hiring someone to come in and say, generate $40 million of pipeline, like wouldn't you wanna know uh, what our current conversion rates look like or how much we're driving today? Hello again, and welcome to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president at Blast Media, and as always, I will be your host and bartender today. As an agency who works with B2B SaaS brands, we're big fans of G2 as both a review site and a place for industry content. So it's no surprise I wanted to snag someone from the G2 marketing team as our last guest on season one of SaaS Half Full. So I did. I'm pumped to share my conversation with Adam Goyette, VP of Demand Gen at G2. Adam has scaled the Demand Gen team at G2 and is talking to us today about how to hire kick-ass marketers. So let's get into it and grab a drink with Adam. Good morning, Adam. Thank you for joining me on SAS Half Full. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Happy to. Well, I'm working remote this week with my Blast Media colleagues and many other companies. So listeners... I'm without my Yeti mic today, so hopefully you'll still love me even without the highest quality audio. You may hear children um, in the background with myself or Adam or a dog from what I understand, Um, because Adam, you are living the remote life amidst all of this COVID-19 craziness, right? Yes, I am. So I'm working right now out of my basement and I have two kids and two dogs uh, about a floor above me that randomly scream and bark and run downstairs. So yeah, hopefully I, uh, the next 30 minutes or so are free of that. Well, what a time to be alive. <laughs> equally as important, are you joining me for a drink today? I am. Yes. It's, it's early in the morning here, but I am still having coffee. So I put a splash of Bailey's in there to uh, keep with the theme of the show. I so appreciate it. Well, I am battling e-learning with my kids all week, so trust me that a cocktail is very welcome. And I'm having what's called the obligatory vodka drink. It is this citrus-infused cocktail that is luckily transporting me to warmer temps, which you're in Chicago, I'm in Indianapolis, and we're not quite spring temps yet. No, we had a little taste of it, but it's every spring, like in the Midwest, it's like you get a little taste, and then it snows a week later. Well, today we are going to be talking about how to scale your marketing team with rock star marketers, which will no doubt be a popular topic. Um, but before we dive in, Adam, can you walk us through your journey to G2 and provide a little context around how the marketing team there is structured? Uh, so my background uh, has been in B2B SaaS. I've been in there for about 10, 15 years. Kind of started off in product marketing, um, working for a consumer product, uh, Sennheiser, that does headphones, microphones, and then transitioned more into the SaaS world after that through the marketing automation kind of golden era, and then got more into demand gen, lead gen, and I've worked at a couple uh, you know, high-growth startups prior to G2, Fieldlands, which ended up getting acquired by WeWork. I was at Booker for a couple of years in New York, so ended up here at G2. Our team is really broken out into three major groups. So we have demand gen and growth, which is the team that I run. We have our content team, content and SEO. That's a bigger team for us um, because of what G2 does and content being such a big part of our product. Um, And then we have brand, PR, and product marketing as its own separate group as well. And in terms of what the hiring process looks like for the marketing team at G2, give us some more thoughts around where it starts, who makes the final call, is it departmental, is it overarching marketing, just what that looks like for you guys. The way it kind of works for us is, you know, it starts with an initial phone screen with a recruiter, 
that gets passed over to usually the hiring manager. So if I'm hiring someone on my team, I'll have a 30 minute to an hour long conversation with them over the phone doing like a video interview. And then if that goes well, we usually bring them on site. Now, depending on the role, depends a little bit who they're going to speak to. We usually have them speak to probably uh, about five or six different people. So I'll have them maybe speak to like two other people on the marketing team and then speak to if it's a demand gen role, maybe someone in sales, like our head of BDR, and then maybe to the CMO as well. So it a little bit depends on the role of what we're trying to hire for. Um, but that's usually the process. Ultimately, like, you know, feedback to me is super important. So I think from the rest of the team. And so usually we don't move forward if there's like one or two people who are like a a hard no on it unless i feel like really strongly about it otherwise but i don't think i can't think of a scenario where we've actually moved forward with someone where i've gotten a no usually like the people that we hire and feel great about like everyone's a a strong yes on you mentioned video interviews so our our hiring process has come a long way over the last 15 years and we do start with a phone screen as well Um, we haven't yet incorporated though video interviews when did you guys start doing that? And how do you feel like that's generally received by candidates? I think it's good. I think I haven't heard anyone feedback one way or another. So they might hate it. But I think for me, it's very valuable in terms of seeing the person just kind of making that connection in a more personable way uh, than over the phone where it's a little bit harder to read body language. It's just harder to get some of those cues of the way they're delivering things. So it's, it's an easier way to almost like mimic an in-person interview. Uh, which I would rather do than over the phone because over the phone stuff it, it can be hard sometimes. So um, I haven't gotten pushback on on it really at all. Um, and so we've been doing it since I started. I just we sent out a Zoom link uh, for the interview, and, and that's how we kind of run them. Have you found that there are people who breeze through the phone interview and then bomb the video? Yeah. So um, yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things I think we have HR do the initial screen just to, like sanity check, like background and all that sort of stuff make sure they have the right skill set. And then once they get to the first interview with me, I like to go pretty deep on the first interview uh, and, and not just a surface level, like tell me about your background and read off your resume to me. So I think that's one of the tricks in hiring a team is like getting into the weeds pretty quickly. Let's go step back here um, and talk broadly because I, I do want to then dive into what are those specific questions and, and what are you looking to uncover? What do you feel like most marketing leaders get wrong in their approach to the hiring process? I think one of the things they get wrong is not getting into the weeds enough and asking like second layer questions, right? So digging in a little bit deeper. So uh, marketers are, are good at marketing, right? And marketing's filled with tons of buzzwords. So it's very easy I think for someone to come in and say, I manage the ABM campaign, right? Um, A lot of leaders, I think, don't take that next step to say, well, specifically, what did you do and what were you responsible for, right? And so I think like uh, they can get sometimes just caught up in the high level concept of it. And you could be one marketer on a team of 10 that ran an an ABM program, right? Uh, And your involvement was pretty minimal, but you can talk about it all, but you've never actually run it. So I think marketers sometimes are good at, portraying like their involvement is a lot more than it actually was. And so I think marketing leaders, sometimes when they get it wrong, they don't dive deep enough. And then they expect someone to come in and be able to run the whole program. And the reality is like they haven't done that before. Right. And if you had dug a little bit deeper to understand their exact role, I think you could get to that outcome sooner. And how much do you weigh experience that sort of that resume criteria with soft skills or I guess the intangibles? 
So uh, a lot. I, I think the culture of the team um, matters a lot to me. Um, and so things I look for when we're interviewing is like the questions they ask me. I, I feel like that's a really good gauge on on like their level of interest. And do they have the right kind of like curiosity that I want for someone coming into a role, right? Um, and G2, like, I think we have built a team that's very like data-driven, very curious, uh, and, and very entrepreneurial, right? And I think like, if you're not taking the time to do some of the research and understand like the company you want to go work for and have like really pointed, interesting questions, not just general, like, what do you like working about there type stuff, right? Um, that I think that to me are, are a few red flags. Um, and so I think like those soft skills are, are the things I, I try to get from from those kinds of questions of like where their head's at and, and like wh- what's what's piquing their interest and what gets them excited. And then there's the little things too. I think of when someone actually does come in person for an interview, it seems really small, but like how friendly are they to the front desk person? Do they pick up their coffee cup when they leave the room or do they just leave it for someone else to do? Like I just kind of always notice those things just because I think like, I don't know. <laughs> I grew up like uh, with like parents who were very like you know that your your politeness matters and the way you treat other people matters and so and that matters at G two right and I want people who are nice and fun to work with and, and treat each other with respect. So you look for genuine curiosity, and that is uncovered through the questions that they're asking. And yeah, we all get the same dumb questions, right? What does a typical day look like? What do you like most about working here? But what questions stick out to you? What type of questions? to you really show a genuine sense of curiosity? So if I'm hiring someone for to run paid media, for instance, I love it if they've actually gone through and looked at our ads and tried to figure out like, hey, I noticed you guys are running campaigns on Facebook and LinkedIn. Why aren't you guys doing this, right? And they just taken that next step to try to understand the strategy or like, you know, take that those next level questions. So asking me about the tech stack we're using, right? Like that matters a lot if you're a demand gen marketer. Um, like, don't you care about which tech stack we're using? And so like trying to understand the processes and understand our sales process or understand our current conversion rates. Because if I'm hiring someone to come in and say, generate $40 million of pipeline, like, wouldn't you want to know? Uh, what our current conversion rates look like or how much we're driving today. So the people who are thinking like that next step down, almost like, okay, if I was to take this job, like, what does it look like today? And so I think like, and they've done some of the work to try to figure it out. You know, it's not that much work to spend 30 minutes prepping for an interview to look at someone's content strategy and quickly get a read on it, right? There's tons of things you can go and see what tracking pixels they have on their site so you can understand their tech stack a little bit better and then ask questions around that. Like that just... Those are little things that I think go a long way to show like you've taken the extra stre- extra step. And the reality is like 90% of the candidates out there today don't do that. Well, shit, man. I spent 30 minutes preparing for this interview and I'm not even looking for a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you, are, you know where to find me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so outside of a, a genuine sense of curiosity, what are other soft skills or personality traits that you feel should be uncovered that are making for great marketers today? The other big one to me is being data-driven. So a lot of times I think, you know, marketers can get caught up in kind of just doing things to do things. But the marketers that I find are really successful and it doesn't really matter what they're working on are extremely data-driven, like down the funnel all the way through, right? So understanding like if you're writing content, like how much traffic are you actually generating? How many newsletter subscribers are you getting? And even if you're just a piece of that puzzle, 
knowing the full outcome, I think, and people who can speak to that are the kind of people you want because they're going to be aligned to the end outcome you as a leader actually want, right? And I think there's a couple of ways you can interview folks to get to those questions and understand, like, are they actually driven that way or not? But I think that's another big one, like data-driven, you know, are they curious and entrepreneurial? And then just the cultural fit are really the three big ones that I look for when hiring. Something I've seen you talk about quite a bit on LinkedIn is sales and marketing team alignment and how important it is that marketers understand that. How do you uncover a candidate's feelings on departmental synergy? That one's a little bit trickier. That's where I I honestly, a lot of times we'll have our BDR uh, manager come in and, and interview. And it's a little bit more of like the questions they ask that person, right? Are they asking like, hey, what does the sales process look like? What happens to a lead when they fill out a form for a demo request? Like um, what SLAs are in place? Like, are they asking questions that that speak to like that alignment? I think those things uh, are some of the ways I try to look for it. It's a little bit harder to tell. Um, And then one of the other ways I think is just asking about their current situation. So one of the big things I do is I actually don't ask a lot of hypothetical, like if you were at G2, you know, what would you do here? I ask very much in the weeds of like their job today. Um, so try to understand, I think if it's a demand gen marketer, like, okay, like how many leads are you passing over today? You know, how are those leads actually converting through the funnel? Uh, what's the SLA in place with your sales team now? And like when you ask those level of questions and they can't speak to it, that's a big red flag for me because if they're not doing that at their company now or they can't speak to it at their company now, like why would you expect them to do that at your company today? Yeah, fair. Used an analogy before about a chef never tasting his own food to marketers who don't listen to sales calls in that it shouldn't happen. Can you talk more about that? I think like marketers sometimes operate in a bubble, right? Where you're just driving in leads and you're not aware what's happening on the other end. The reality is like the real magic is like you get someone live on the phone, right? And you're have an hour long demo to show them the product, to walk them through, you know, all the features, all the bells and whistles. And it's really eye-opening, I think, to listen to those sales calls and hear like, what are the actual objections people have about buying your product, right? What is actually getting them most excited about it? What does their actual like process look like in terms of buying the product, right? And so I think as marketers, um, getting leads is not the name of the game, right? Like getting leads to get revenue is ultimately like the name of the game, right? And so so I think marketers who don't focus on that side of it miss a lot of opportunity to understand like, you know, the way your sales team is positioning it. Uh, does that actually align with the ads you're running? So are people getting on calls and like it's completely misaligned of what they think they're going to be getting versus what they actually get? Or is it completely aligned and here are the common objections and could you help, you know, answer some of those in an email confirming the demo request, right? Like there's there's a lot of like things to to uncover in those and understand like, you know, what does that sales process actually look like and how you can help as a marketer because ultimately like you want to convert as many of those leads possible into sales at the end of the day. Uh, and so doing that, I think helps you a lot. And also I think from a, like a quality standpoint, just like having those little touch bases, understand like where did this lead come from? Like, hey, why why is this, why are we driving so many like marketing coordinators? Like ultimately like the person who signs the contract is the CMO. So like, can we get higher up the food chain in terms of some of our ad campaigns? So I think there's a lot of learnings to be had from the real, real examples of like getting on sales calls. Yeah. I really like the idea of a, a sales team leader taking part in the interview process to understand their feelings on that departmental um, alignment. 
want to pause here for a minute and dive a little bit deeper into what Adam talked about when he referenced marketers not listening in on a sales call. And he equated that with a chef who's never tasting his own recipes or final product. So as a B2B SaaS PR agency, a talk track that you'll hear coming from us is how PR can impact the B2B customer journey and move prospects down the funnel. So for example, how we speak to prospects who are in the brand awareness phase who need education is different than how we speak to prospects in the consideration phase who need vendor comparisons. So even as a PR team, we require access to our client sales leaders to truly understand the buyer journey. I mean, they are the day-to-day voice of the customer. And even though a sales leader may not be an external spokesperson that we're leveraging with the press, what we do is story mine with these individuals. Take some time to speak with them to really understand why are customers buying? Why aren't they? What are the common objections? What are the top three selling points that no matter what, closes a deal. How do you talk about competitors? And we leverage that as ideas that can fuel our potential thought leadership topics that we pitch to the press. And what's interesting is that in our client onboarding process, we are still sometimes asked by marketing teams why we need to talk to sales. And this has to change. So we're an extension of the marketing team, right, as the PR agency. And that marketing team is an extension of their sales team So we're all chasing the same goals. So I completely agree with Adam in this marketing and sales alignment, and it needs to extend to any marketing partnerships or vendors that you have in place. Okay, let's get back into the conversation with Adam, where he talks about the challenges in scaling a marketing team. I do want to ask another question about something you mentioned earlier. You said that there are oftentimes five or six people who touch a candidate and interview them in some capacity. Are you driving what those people are asking to ensure that they're getting what they need to get? Is this sort of just an open-ended, whatever they want to ask? How is that structured? It's pretty open-ended, I think, for the most part. So the way it usually works is like, I'll ping people. If I go first, basically, I'll come out and say like, hey, it's kind of a feedback loop live almost. Like I might say like, hey, what'd you think? Uh, Right after they walk out of a room and they'll say like, good. I think they're really good here, but here's an area to dig in a little bit more. And I'll say like, okay, cool. And I'll go in and ask it. Right. And so I think like we kind of feed off of each other throughout the interview process. So we all feel comfortable with like, oh yeah, I talked to him about this or I talked to her about this. So I understand the, like they're good there. Right. And so I think, uh, so I don't really structure it too rigidly from like what other people on the team um, ask. I feel pretty confident after my interview of like whether they can actually do the job. And so I think like one of the big things I just look for is like the cultural fit from the rest of the team. Like does the rest of the team feel excited to work with this person or not? Right. So you're really using them as the barometer of culture of sort of that, that feeling, right? Do I, do I feel like they could work in our team or not? All things considered equal from a, a skills and resume standpoint. Yep. Yeah. We've, we've implemented that as well. Um, just to get, it's just another gut check, right? And sometimes I've spent too much time with a candidate uh, or might know someone that recommended the candidate. And so to get that outside experience with the people who will be actually working with this person is extremely valuable. And it's also like, you're the hiring manager. So like the way they're going to act with you could be very different from the way they would act with a peer, right? And, And especially in an interview situation. So you kind of uncover some of that stuff if 
if you're the only one asking, like you're not going to uncover some of those other things just because of the relationship and the way it's set up. So we've all been in a situation where we feel really good about a new hire, right? It's sort of like dating. You go first three dates, just killing it, love it. And then date four is freak flag is flying, right? What do you do when you have made a bad hire? What should you take away from it? What can people learn about bad hires who ultimately don't work out? I think like understanding like what got you excited and like, did you put blinders on a little bit? Cause I think a lot of times, like if you go back and like, think about it, there's probably some red flags in the hiring process where you saw it a little bit. Maybe it didn't seem like they were all in and super excited to be joining or, you know, maybe it was just a small comments and things like that. So I think it's a little bit helpful to understand like what were some of those red flags maybe you ignored and and blew past. And then also like, why did you, and then how do you incorporate that next time? Because I think part of the problem is like as hiring managers, you go through so many candidates, your HR team might screen 200 candidates and you've been through 20 phone screens, right? And you get one person and they seem amazing. And then you kind of just sell yourself like this is the person and you just kind of put blinders on from there on of like, oh yeah, this is definitely our person, right? And you stop digging, you know, and even then it's not, it's not foolproof because like you're talking about spending a couple hours with a person and then like the reality is like, it's like going from like having dinner with a couple of people to like living with that person, right? It's a very different experience, right? <laughs> so I think like you start to uh, like be like, oh, wow, I didn't know they did that with their with their laundry, right? Um, and they just leave it on the floor here and, you know, they leave their coffee cup on, you know, on the sink, right? Like all these little things, I think from like a, a work perspective uh, that start to like mount up. But I think like, understanding like where did you where did you miss and what were some of those red flags that maybe you should have you should have dug a little deeper adam you and i would never make it i i both leave my laundry on the floor and leave my coffee mugs out but yeah well i was actually talking about that's that's me in this example too so i think we'd actually oh, yeah. we, could just, we could just live in messy chaotic <laughs> bliss yeah um <laughs> on the flip side once you have a candidate on feeling really good about it and it is the right person how do you ensure that your onboarding process is tight and that you assimilate them the right way with the team? One of the big things I like to do is like get people into the mix pretty quickly. So I think it's like, there's no better way to learn for me than like actually just start doing a project. So I love to like actually start incorporating uh, them into brainstorms into like team projects and, and things that we're working on and get them like working on something in week one. Cause I think like part of like the excitement of a job wears off a little when you have to sit in a conference room and go through like company onboarding for a week. And like, you're like, okay, like, can I just kind of start getting involved? Right. Like one of the things that I've done with my team is, is we actually operate in two week sprints. And so it's been very helpful for, for me to like have, good clarity from like what everyone's working on, but also from like an accountability standpoint of like people able to jump in and and start working on projects and helping out right off the bat. And so, so I think like one of the big things is like getting them involved pretty early, um, even if it's just shadowing people or working on projects alongside of them um, so they can understand our processes and understand a little bit of all the things we're working on pretty quickly. How long have you been with G2? Uh, Two years. Okay. Have you, have you, had autonomy to to scale your marketing team um, in the time that you've been there. Yeah, so uh, the demand gen team, the marketing team as a whole, has grown pretty uh, drastically. Uh, we've gone from 
I think when I joined, it was like 15 people and we're at about 50 right now. Um, so pretty large growth. Um, and the management team, uh, when I joined was about three or four, uh, we're up to about 10 right now. So, uh, we've grown the team uh, pretty significantly. I'm curious, what do you wish that more CMOs understood about scaling marketing teams now that you've done it? Well, one of it, I think is like the biggest thing to me is like hiring in good people, uh, and giving them the freedom to kind of run on things, right? Um, so I think like, and it's not just a CMO, I think it's really any leader. It's like understanding, like bringing in experts, like getting that level of comfort with them and then letting them run. And I think the other big thing for me is like hiring marketers who are entrepreneurial and, you know, cutting edge and testing a lot of things, like give them the, the freedom and the reins to actually go out and do those things, right? So they're not frustrated in a job where they don't get to try out new things. And so uh, one of the ways I've done that at G2 is we have a, a decent amount of what we actually run is is test. Um, and so like it gives marketers, uh, we do like a monthly brainstorm and basically the way it works is everyone has to put ideas on the board throughout the month. So it's not like you just come in a room and you just brainstorm for like, like a forced brainstorm for an hour. You've already like put all of I, a whole bunch of random ideas onto a board. And like the idea is like make it as wild or as crazy as you want. But then like you have to actually pitch that idea in this meeting of like, okay, here's my idea. And it could be leveraged from anything, right? As marketers, as consumers, the amazing thing is like you get to see everyone else's marketing to you. And so you can get inspiration from tons of different places. And so we've had actually some of our best ideas and best campaigns come out of those meetings because it's giving people the free reign to start thinking beyond just their current scope of their job. And so, you know, we've had... Our field marketers come up with amazing campaigns uh, that we want to run from a demand gen standpoint and vice versa, right? And so I think like that level, the team really loves doing that sort of stuff because it's creative, it's fun. So I think that's the the other big thing is like giving them the, the freedom to be creative and, and be marketers, right? And ultimately that's what you want and you want people to kind of take those shots and a lot of them might not hit. Right. And I think that's okay. As long as you're testing it on a small scale and then ramping it up from there. You'd mentioned that you've been in B2B SaaS for a decade now. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen as a, as a B2B marketer unfold over the last 10 years? It's been kind of interesting. Cause I think one of the big things, it seemed like there's been this like shift happening a little bit where I think like in the past, you know, marketing automation, ramped up. And then I was like, how do you like personalize at mass scale? And everyone was trying to just do like mass personalization. And then I think like, when you do stuff like that, like everyone's everyone knows the game, right? And so everyone knows like, you're not actually putting my name in there, right? And so like these personalization techniques just kind of like, go away. And I think like, true personalization and true like value add stuff, it seems like it's the name of the game now. And I think in the past, it was like, you know, from a content standpoint of writing fluffy content pieces that didn't add a ton of value just to get the rankings up and, and, you know, doing mass personalization on your emails and blasting people. And I think like marketers and and consumers are just getting really smart now about like what they actually want, want from a buyer. And I think the journey of buying has shifted as well. Right. Um, If you look at a site like Amazon over the last 10 years, you look at that buying pattern, right? It's like, I don't, I have to go to Best Buy. I don't have to go to like 
not to date myself, like Circuit City, <laughs> like go talk to someone about like which is the best TV for me to buy. I go on Amazon and I read reviews and I make my decision and I just buy it and it shows up. And I think buyers in like B2B SaaS are taking a lot of that consumer behavior themselves, right? If I think about like the last few products I've bought, it wasn't because I randomly ended up on their website and were convinced by the the copy, right? Like to me, I did my research by like reaching out to people in my network to say like, hey, I have a problem, right? Like we're looking for a new direct mail provider. Who are you guys using? And that's how I find out. And then I might go and read the reviews and then I might go to their website and look on their website and see like, what does this product actually do? And then I'll request the demo. So I think like the buyer's journey, uh, because all the information online, they own most of that journey now. And the reality is like when they fill out a form, usually uh, it's because they're like truly interested and have a problem. And they're probably pretty far along in the process of like making up their mind that they, they are looking for a solution. You mentioned a few buzzwords of the past, marketing automation, personalization, content marketing. What's the marketing buzzword that's overplayed today that you are sick and tired of hearing about? This is an easy one, but like the ABM buzzword, I think like everyone tries and it's mostly from like the companies themselves, right? Because like everyone is trying to claim they're like an ABM tool. And like you have like email signature tools that are like the ABM tool and you have ad platforms that are an ABM tool and you have all these things. And it's like, so I think that term is just so overused that it's like when you say like ABM, it's like, what does that actually mean in reality, right? Like it's just targeted marketing in an intelligent way, right? Uh, in, a, in a personalized kind of way for some key accounts that you want to sell to. Like that's really all it is. But I think like everyone's using that because it's a hot buzzword and they're trying to position themselves as the ABM tool for X, right? And so that to me is like the word where like when I see ABM, I'm just like, okay, I don't know, what does that actually mean? Yeah, I went to B2B Marketing Exchange in Scottsdale right before uh, all the coronavirus craziness happened. So it was the last conference that I went to. And I mean, literally every aisle that I went down was some somebody tying themselves to ABM. And there were some true ABM platforms there, uh, but the rest were just tying themselves to that. That and intent data, like everybody was talking about intent data. So I think I think maybe ABM language is going to be out and intent is going to take its place, but really meaning the same thing. Yeah. Well, I can't hate on the intent data because of G2. <laughs> That's kind of one of the big things we do, to be honest. So. <laughs> well, you're on the curve. That's You're on the upper curve. That's what people are going to start talking about. <laughs> um, well, if we can take you outside of the world of B2B SaaS, since I know that's that's been your life for a while, but if you could market one business other than G2, every type of business is on the table, what would you want it to be? This is going to be <laughs> probably a little bit different answer, but I would love to market uh, for a small service business. So one of the things I, I've sold uh, and marketed to SMBs for a while and you know, I think one of the really interesting things about SMBs, whether it be like a landscaper or a salon, is most of them are very bad at marketing. And the reality is like it's because they don't have marketing teams and they're themselves not marketers, right? Um, they run a, a salon because they love cutting hair or they run a landscaping company because that's what they did as in high school or in college and they started their own company to do it. They're not marketers. And so to me, I feel like that's like I just look at the upside and I was like, I always kind of wonder like, hey, if I started, I granted I don't know how to cut hair, but if I start or marketing for a salon, like how 
successful could you make that small business because you're just really good at marketing and way better than all the other salons out there? And could you win by just kind of marketing? So I think that'd be a fun kind of experiment just to play around with and stuff like that. I don't think they pay as much as B2B SaaS companies, but <laughs> that would be like the, the one area where I think like it'd be a fun thing to test and play around with. Listen, Joe's mulching company may have way more marketing dollars than you think. Yeah, that's, that is very true. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you wanted to say in regards to hiring marketing rock stars that we didn't cover? I think the only other thing, um, I touched on a little bit of like the tactics and some of the things I use on the interview, but like one of the, the, the key things I always look for and is actually like have them walk me through their funnel today. And so... I want to walk them. I want to demand a marketer. I want them to be able to tell me their exact funnel. So like how much are you spending on ads? Which channels are you using? Okay, like cool. So how much so you're how many leads are you driving? Okay, so you're saying you're driving leads for 50 bucks a piece. How are those actually converting to sales opportunities? Uh, And that's always been like and then follow all the way down to sales. Like and then try to do the math. Like okay, so you're like spending two grand to acquire customers, right? And I think one of the ways I've done that, which is helpful to kind of like eliminate a little bit of like the BS meter of like marketers just, you know, using a lot of buzzwords is by getting a few of those data points earlier in conversations. So like be like, oh, what channels are you on? And like how much how much is your ad budget? And then like, you know, in the maybe my second phone screen or something like that, or, you know, when they're on site, one of the first questions I might ask is like how many opportunities are they sourcing? So now I know like, you know, their cost per opportunity. And then at some point in the interview, I asked them to like walk me through the full funnel and I can kind of see like, does this math actually add up? And it's amazing the amount of times where it doesn't. And you're like, wait, hold on a second. Like based off of this, like you're spending this amount, you know, $5,000 for every opportunity, but like, you know, you're only selling a hundred dollar product. Like how does that math work? And you quickly realize the people who either one aren't tracking it all the way through the funnel and if you're in demand gen, to me, that's a huge red flag because it just shows like you're not, you know, truly aligned with sales and outcomes and stuff like that. So that's one of the ways I think like, not like a gotcha, but just kind of like trying to understand like how much do they actually know the funnel and how much can they speak that language? Yeah. I mean, cause you either know it or you don't. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So that's great advice. Well, Adam, this has been awesome. We didn't have any interruptions by pets or kids. So I consider this a success. Do you have a signature or favorite toast to send us out? I do not. I guess in honor of St. Patrick's Day yesterday, we can say sláinte. Perfect. I'll drink to that. Thanks again to Adam for joining us from his basement. If you want to try my obligatory vodka cocktail, we're giving away a limited number of cocktail kits to our listeners delivered straight to your door. Did y'all catch that? Free booze, folks. And I know a lot of you are in e-learning jail with your kids like me, so please take advantage of this offer. All you need to do is go to cocktailcourier.com slash sasshalffull and use promo code marketing to claim a free cocktail kit. Again, cocktailcourier.com slash sasshalffull and use promo code marketing to claim a free kit. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Until next time, bottoms up.